This is the one with mint-conditioned spacemen. A cricket ball in a pocket. All of the combined knowledge of humanity stored on convenient microfilm. And a brundlefly. It's called the Ark in Space. Here we go. We're embarking on a voyage all through time and all through space. Counting Daleks, Dalent Hood, and the Cybertronic race. Sontarans look like taters, and Silurians all have wonky scales. And the Doctor has a TARDIS, we're reviewing all his tales. Who back when? Reviewing all of who there is. Who back when? Subscribe and read on iTunes, please. Episode by episode, we're trudging down this temporal road. Come join us on this odyssey. What other choice could there be than who back when? Who back when? Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Who Back When, a Doctor Who podcast. Or Doc Past. Or Doc Past. We are here, we being me, Jim. Hello, Jim. That being you, Leon. Hello, me, Leon. Hello, Leon. Hello, Jim. <laughs> and and we are both here today to talk about the Ark in Space. That's right. C-076. Holy moly. Second. Second. Oh, my God. Of the fourth Doctor. Oh, so aroused. Second Tom Baker serial. <laughs> did you like it? I think I did. Yeah? Top level vibe I had was strange nostalgia for a thing I've never seen before. Oh, wow. I don't, I don't know if there was just a slight different sense of production on this that maybe was a little bit more getting into the 80s zone. That Oh, I love that you I, said that. I don't know. Did, how, how did you feel about this one? I'm going to say something controversial. <gasps> okay. I didn't... I'm joking. I loved it. It was fantastic. <laughs> And I absolutely also felt some nostalgia. I did not remember the the Wirren themselves, but I remembered the larvae. I remembered the dude in green bubble wrap. Bubble wrap, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, I definitely had a trip down memory lane. It was wonderful. Shall we give everyone else a trip down memory lane and just summarize what this whole serial is about? That's a fantastic idea. What should we call such a segment? A bite-sized chunk of who? Oh, if we were to use an acronym for that, what could that be? (laughs) Oh, it would be a B-scow. Excellent. Time for us to synopsize, lubify and summarize. So take a view and grab a brief and listen to this overview. This free-for-all we like to call a bite-sized chunk of who. Brand new companion Harry Sullivan messes with the helmet regulator aboard the TARDIS and sends himself, the Doctor, and the old girl Sarah Jane Smith to a cryo repository holding the last remnants of humanity. The Ark, as it is called, has been orbiting the Earth for millennia now. Tragically, its passengers overslept as a race of flesh-eating and mind-absorbing space flies stowed away and turned off their alarm clocks to eat them in their sleep. It's now up to the Doctor and his two friends to rescue mankind from certain extinction. Dum dum dum! Biscow over, you are welcome! Aren't you just... I have a question for you right off the top. Oh, okay. And you may not be aware of the answer, but if I give you two options, you will probably know which one applies to you. Okay. When you saw this serial... The effects of the space station orbiting the Earth and also later on with the rockets and all that stuff, was that 1970s miniature prop work or was that 2000-something DVD work? Oh, I, I saw poor quality CGI. Ah, yeah. <laughs> so, I, so I've, uh, yeah, I've not seen the original of this, I believe. So I, I did as well, and two episodes in, I mean, m- my first notes was like, Wow, that's that looks really impressive. <laughs> <laughs> and then you were. <laughs> then I started thinking about hmm, what's going on here. And about halfway through the serial, I looked up some trivia and I found that they actually, for the DVD release, they made they redid some of the effects in CGI. 
So unfortunately, I've seen the same version. But you can still see the miniature prop work on YouTube. You just have to, I mean, give it a quick Google or YouTube search, and, and you can find it. And in fact, I have prepared, for the purposes of this recording, a comparison shot. Beautiful CGI over here. Miniature prop work over here. Ladies and gents of Podcastland, you can find these images on whobackone.com, or you can just picture us. I was about to say, because the CGI stuff was early day CGI stuff, well, not up to today's quality anyway, um, I was about to say, I bet the prop work is actually a little bit better. <laughs> I take that back. <laughs> I, I thought that the prop work looked really charming. It looked quite low budget. Yeah. And I wonder if that's because they just spunk their entire budget on the sets, because the sets look fantastic in this. See, I wonder if that's why this nostalgic feeling that I mentioned at the start is present in this, because the sets are a bit more fleshed out. And I don't know. And I think I was just, I was very happy that this was a spacey episode. You know, this is... Yeah. I think... It's not a historical, and they're not on Earth. We get to see something that they have specifically created for the purpose of this narrative. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, sci-fi doesn't have to mean space, certainly, but I think... But it helps, for it's God's sake. It's where your brain probably goes to for the... <laughs> Definitely. The, the very simple kind of connection is science uh, fiction, space. Yeah, and also to clarify, the sets in question, they have one corridor with space, like, visible space... Yeah. which they reuse a million times, rightly so, because it is beautiful. They have a control room that we see from two different angles. <laughs> <laughs> the actual repository of humans. Um, do we actually have two rooms for that? Oh, maybe they have or, two rooms. Or maybe, maybe it's just, just like seeing, seeing through to yeah, something. I bet it's just the one room and then we see it twice. From yeah, possibly. And then there's like the rocket ship. Yeah, slash... Uh, I Hangar... Slash something like warehouse hangar or whatever. Yeah, and the... I forgot what it was, but the, the kind of solar energy thing. Oh, yeah, was, exactly, yeah. Which quite properly was the same set, but... Very, very... Dar- darkened area with random box prop we can put in the corner. But presumably, I, I reckon they blew their load on the following two things. One, the walkway with the space yeah, background. that's awesome. And two, the descending staircase, <laughs> <laughs> or the ladder, which... Wow, do they just stop all action on set so that we can spend like a good 30 seconds watching this ladder descend. <laughs> <laughs> they really got their money's worth. On a, a strange kind of segue note, uh-huh. I'm sure, I don't think I actually wrote it down. I'm sure there's a moment that Harry says how much he hates sliding doors. Yes, he does. And I was kind of like taken a, a little bit aback at the time. It's like, how many sliding doors have you come across at this point, <laughs> Harry? Like In the 70s. I don't know really, like, loads of shops have them, and they probably were around like that in the 70s, but... Not at, no, at, surely not, not. To the extent where you would be like, oh, I'm so bored of these sliding doors, and go onto your first space station and go like, oh, it's another bloody sliding door. You know what? He's probably not, he's not thinking of electric automated sliding doors. He's probably thinking of just, like, sliding doors. You know, I, I grew up in a, in a flat with sliding doors. <laughs> I reckon it's something like that. Oh, wait, it's navel. Maybe it's... Oh, that's it! That's it! No, you got it. Uh, Ignore what I just said. That's exactly what it is. What do you think of him, Harry Sullivan? Um, I don't know. Part of me really liked him in this episode, and then another part of me thought he was a bit of a dick. Okay, all right. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that part is more connected to just how Sarah Drain... Drain? (laughs) Sarah Jane is treated in this episode uh-huh. or at least this serial um i think episode one 
it just it just struck me how she is the established companion yeah she's the one that okay it's a new doctor but she's the one that has been around the doctor and has proven herself already correct and there's, there's a tv trope which i read about years ago which is called fridging fridging yeah what is this and it's about the fact that i forget where it came from it's some comic book originally a female character dies and literally gets stuffed into a fridge oh okay and becomes the motivation for the male main character and it became a trope because it appeared like that like literally put into a fridge (laughs) multiple (laughs) times in various pieces of media and this happens to sarah jane like she's not killed but she's basically a plot device she's gone she's gone missing she's out of action like throughout the majority of the first episode and this is this is the main character the the main um companion companion. that's true but she does get a tremendous amount of agency later on i mean I, i would argue that she does more to further the plot later than Harry does. Harry basically, he wields a gun later on and he finds yeah. a laser beam at some flies. But aside from that, he doesn't do a heck of a lot. No, I, I would agree with you. But like my my thoughts through the first episode were like, what the hell's going on here? Harry's yeah. Harry's being the companion after just once in the TARDIS yeah. and Sarah Jane's literally been shoved in a box, you know. <laughs> I, I was very afraid that they were going to cut her out entirely from this serial. Yeah. What, what I thought was going to happen, that she was... The Doctor says she's out for at least 3,000 years. I figured there's a pretty good chance that she's just going to remain in cryostasis. She'll be the plot device or like the MacGuffin for a while because the flies will want to get her to eat her or yeah. to gain the Doctor's knowledge through, by eating her or something like that. But then basically the episode will end with them dematerializing in the TARDIS, rematerializing 3,000 years later and waking her up. And she'd be like, what did I miss? You know, uh, very glad that that didn't happen. Yeah. Even though it would have been kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been kind of cool, actually. Right? Because no one actually would, from the party point of view, the, the TARDIS party point of view, would give a shit. Exactly. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to make a mental note that maybe something like that needs to happen to Yaz in the next audiobook. <laughs> oh, what did I say? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I did find that very surprising, just how, how she was treated through the first episode. Yeah. And because Harry is referring to, like, we alluded to this in the, um, the Beast Gal, that she's the old girl. Like, he... He loves this phrase. Oh, he really does. Which I don't quite understand, because... Oh, the old girl. Like, even even in the 70s, I thought that kind of... It literally did apply to older ladies, or, <laughs> or generally more to mechanical devices. Exactly. I was going to say to ships. <laughs> yeah, ships yeah. or cars or... But uh, maybe, you know. this is, maybe this is a, a remnant of the, the naval culture that he's subjected to. Maybe. I don't, it, it's either incredibly ham-fisted or not actually present enough to have the context i think because it's not obvious that that's what he's doing he could just it also seems like be a... that he's maybe just really old-fashioned i mean he doesn't seem super progressive as a no. as a chap he's i don't even feel like he's he's a man of the world really he may have traveled around the <laughs> you know the, the seven seas <laughs> in the service but he i i don't feel like he's well traveled does that make sense yeah uh, well i think it's hard to know what, really what his character is at the moment but I, I would probably get the same vibe. Yeah. If he has if he has traveled a lot, he's traveled a lot with the British idea of probably being superior to most people he's yeah. met, <laughs> which was prevalent up until, well, actually till today. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, every, everyone out there. <laughs> everyone in the world, yeah. Um, the European Union. The, the, uh... <laughs> 
Yes. Yes. That's not beat about the bush. No, no, okay. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so we we've got some some weird stuff happening with companions. Yeah, that's true. I, I, I've got some observations regarding the episode itself, or the setting and the the actual idea behind it. Okay. We have been aboard an ark, a human ark, before. Ooh. In Classic Who. There was an episode called The Ark in Season 3. So we are now... I'm it, assuming it wasn't in space then. <laughs> it was in space. What? It was in space. Then why wasn't this title taken? <laughs> <laughs> this was aired in January slash February 1975. If we go back to 1966, William Hartnell, the very first Doctor, yeah. was aboard The Ark. Not The Ark in space, but The Ark, uh, which was populated by humans and monoids, cyclopses. Okay. We haven't had exactly this plot, but we've had exactly this premise before. Earth, no longer a viable place to live. People now want to colonize the rest of space or the rest of the universe, but it takes an awful long time to get anywhere. So they are put to sleep. Not to put to sleep. They are... They are <laughs> cryogenically frozen. Cryogenically frozen. Except in this case, not just cryogenically frozen. They are also shrunken. Oh. So you have people that literally fit in, in like, drawers. <laughs> and that way they stored all of humanity. Like, the entire planet. Not just... In this case, it was just a few hundred people. Oh, wow. And then they go off into space. And a few people are meant to be awake... And they're served by their slaves, these monoids who obviously rebel. So what's the the time frame for these two different things? Fantastic but... question. <laughs> I will look this up. I realized as I was saying that that I had no idea. <laughs> so the Ark in Space is set in the year 16,087. And okay, so that helps a great deal. The Ark is set during the 57th segment of time. Oh, right. Yeah. That really helps. Thanks, guys. So that's, what, lunchtime on Tuesday? It means nothing. Oh, damn it. It's very difficult to to tell, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> they kept it vague enough that you don't have to. But Oh, but it, what it says is it's at least 10 million years after the first segment of time. So that's, that's the definition within the arc, within that serial. Right. So that's way after this. Yeah. Way okay. after this. Because... Because the kind of premise with this one is they're expecting to go back to Earth. They are at Earth. I mean, they've well, already uh, gone... Yeah, they're obviously they're in orbit of Earth, but they're just kind of waiting for the radiation, radiation whatever, to so die down and then yeah. go back and repopulate it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, it is, it is quite a different premise in a way. Which I assume is going to happen in the next episode. Yes. I've not seen it. So Should we jump to the end? Just skip super quickly. to the end? Yeah. I did not expect them just to... Nor I. ...jump in a teleporter and go, oh, yeah, we'll just see how the Earth's doing. Yeah. Just, oh, what, but the TARDIS? The, no. yeah, exactly. Are you not going to go... The, the TARDIS? What, no, what about no. going back to your time? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Which is fantastic. It's but, absolutely fantastic. Like, I, but, but, no. no, no. So it's, it's almost <laughs> as though these two serials... So the next one is the Sontaran Experiment, I want to say. It's a Sontaran episode. Yeah. It's almost as though these two form one major arc. So presumably yeah. that one's going to end with these guys. I'm assuming it has a happy ending. So it's probably going to end with these guys going down and colonizing Earth, right? Well, don't want to presume well, too much. But tune in, tune back in in two weeks' time and see, see if yeah. uh, if that's the case. But yeah, because I, I did the same thing. It was like, it was too much of a weird ending not to kind of go, well, what? what's the next thing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's kind of... 
suggestion is it's treated like a, a six-part... Because I think the next one is only a two-parter. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, so okay. So it is kind of treated like a six-part serial, but has this big break in it. Interesting. Which... Which know, makes it's sense. Bit, it's a bit of a weird premise in a way, because it obviously is still the same story, but I guess it gives him a chance to separate away from this Ark and Wirren story for two episodes and well, then maybe he'll said, kind of I have to bring find it back out again. What, what it was called so we've had a, a similar situation that i can we've probably had several similar situations in the past but one that i can think of is uh, an episode called the rescue which is the first or serial called the rescue which is the first one starring a uh, companion vicky aka vicky no pants and um, but she has pants as evidenced by the episode the rescue in which we get a gratuitous upskirt shot oh really of the companion uh, for said upskirt shot, go to whopackwen.com. The, the, <laughs> um, or just don't be a pervert. I've mentioned this on whopackwen before, but every now and then I check the the stats just to see what search phrases get people to our website. <laughs> and I shit you not, every now and then I find uh, upskirt Vicky Doctor Who. <laughs> I was like, all right, oh, cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that there are pervs out there. Uh, help boost our SEO. So the, the um, uh, that was a, as I recall, a two-episode arc, and it fed directly into the ensuing serial, which was like maybe a four-episode. I can't remember which one it was now. Uh, but whatever it was, those two serials could clearly be viewed as one single yeah. one. Oh, wait, hang on. Much better example. The very first serial is called the uh, An Unearthly Child. mm but it was, at least during production, it was billed as two separate ones. One, which is an unearthly child, which is sort of the introduction to all these people. And then, and that's one episode. And then we have something like 10,000 BC, which is a caveman story. But they shoved those two together into one serial. Here we've done the d- reverse, basically. Yeah. yeah. I'd say, like, without having seen the Sontaran episode of uh-huh. Serial, without seeing this Sontaran <laughs> serial, yeah. um, I still feel like this might be a really good thing. I agree. Like, I, I would actually kind of love an entire series to be like this, where it's just mini-episode, erotic things that are just connected together. That would be fantastic. to Yeah, to have one single timeline that we're following. Yeah. It's quite nice. Because I think Classic Who probably does this as well, but New Who certainly, between episodes, you're given the odd nod here and there that loads of other adventures have happened. Yeah, and there's always that moment of, why can't we see that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you do sometimes kind of feel like, actually... What good is it not to see that? Like, yeah. they have all of the time in the world to do stuff, but the companions are aging. They're human. They are along for the ride. Yeah. And, like, we're, we're seeing them get older. So, why not just see a continuous journey? Well, that, well in a uh, sense, it's a bit of a cheat, isn't it? Because it means that you can establish a more profound relationship between characters without having to actually write it. I suppose. So yeah. we as viewers go, oh, but they've been through tons together. We just don't know it. But they've been traveling for years and years. Obviously, they're really close friends. Yeah. Anyway, should we focus a little bit more on? Let's do that. The zero on itself? Let's do that. Let's do that. Um, Where do you want to take this? So we got a big green slimy thing right from the start. Right. Yes, that's true. We have a green slimy way. thing's point of view again. Yeah. Someone found a new thing to shove over the camera. It's fine. Yeah. I think it's that's, okay. I think that's actually the only time they use it. I think so too. It's in episode one and yeah. it's just kind of... Is it in episode one? It might be. It. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's in episode one. And it's just... I think it's literally see the space station orbit in the earth. Then we see uh, we're in pupae larvae. Larvae. Larvae crawling around. Slurping up June, I think he was called. The first one that's taken out of his um, mint condition box. 
So I have questions about this already. Uh, why is this lava still alive? Don't know. Because I know that there is a line at some point in episode one or in episode two, or part one or part two, in which Harry assumes that the reason these things have uh, are started have started scurrying about the place is because when they opened doors, there was a, a, a breath of fresh air. Like basically, they they ventilated the place. And that somehow triggered these things to wake up. Yeah, I, I feel like there's a lot of bollocks science in this. <laughs> but it's eaten June already. Yeah, the very first thing we see is them basically going in and eating, eating June. But that's before the Doc and Co. have arrived. Yeah. All right, retracing the steps of this timeline. For thousands of years, they have been oversleeping aboard the Ark, right? So... Ipso facto, thousands of years ago, the Wirren arrived. Yeah, that would be the implication. And it was electrocuted whilst turning off all the alarms or whatever. So it didn't survive. It just sabotaged everything, tried to eat everyone, but didn't even get as far as eating one. But there was an egg inside this fly. This egg hatches, a larva comes out. This larva crawls around and then what? Falls asleep for thousands of years and wakes up coincidentally before the Doc and Co. arrive to then eat June? I think they fucked up the plot with this. Or possibly it ate June thousands of years ago, then fell asleep, and it is able to just be asleep for thousands of years. And when we in the beginning see it crawling in and eating June, that's actually thousands of years before the Doctor and Co. arrive. Could that be the case? It's possible. I don't I don't know if there's anything that's really solidly given to the episode to imply that's the case, though. I think that justifies Harry's comments, but it then also presupposes that they can be just dormant for thousands of years, which seems really silly to me. Well, the whole premise of the species is that it can survive in space. Yeah, but not perpetually, right? I mean, they still need to eat. Why, well, hasn't, why hasn't this one larva eaten everyone already? Well, yeah, I don't know. I, th- I think the crux of it is that this species should have survived quite happily. I think it was only in the pupae state they were saying it was vulnerable. Like, that's when the doctor wanted to go and attack them. Is that right? Right. Yes. When they're downstairs, you mean. Which I think is... See, I've, I've had to deal with a flea infestation before. Oh, I th- goodness. I think it's actually the opposite. Like, the pupae state is the most hard to get rid of them because oh, really? they just basically go into a little cocoony thing and they're just like impervious to everything. <laughs> and also you can't necessarily find them as easily, presumably. Yeah, I guess. Although these guys are huge. Yeah. yeah. You, you're not going to misplace that under the sofa or even just behind a, a little bit of fabric on the carpet. But yeah, I, I think that is a bit of a woolly plot point in this. Just the whole, they were meant to have woken up thousands of years ago. They weren't cut through the alarm system. So died they, in the and process. Then, and then died. Yeah. And then they've been asleep for a thousand years. And then that's when this whole thing kicks off so again. So possibly June has been eaten as Doc and Co are arriving. Well, I, that is a possibility, right? Unless there is a little thing that I didn't notice. Uh, and ditto. Yeah. That, that really seems to be the way, way it's portrayed. It is you see that space station, you see yeah. the point of view of, of June getting yeah. opened up. And, well, you don't see it getting eaten, I don't think, but, you know. Well, you piece it together later, yeah, that we that's, understand that's what's, what's happened, yeah. and then Doc and Co. arrive. Like, it would be hard to imagine there are a thousand years in between those little scenes there. 
jumping from this one point, which we will never figure out, <laughs> by never I mean until we either read the listener minis or we rewatch this series. <laughs> yeah, someone, um, someone will prove us <laughs> I have incredibly no wrong. I can think of a couple of, because of this. I can think of a couple of people who will correct us. Um, <laughs> how do you feel about the actual setup of the humans being frozen here? So only a few hundred people have been selected for this. They're not the first spaceship to go out there. I mean, sorry, they're just a station orbiting the Earth. Yeah. Other spaceships have been sent out. They say at one point, they talk about Andromeda. The Wirren were originally from Andromeda, yes. right? And they were cast out from their home by human settlers. But only a few hundred remain here to repopulate the entire Earth. And they've already got assigned... I mean, they can build... Fucking partners. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Trying to put that delicately. Oh, yeah, yeah. They have... Fuck buddies. Yeah. <laughs> they, they have assigned uh, fuck buddies and they have assigned jobs. And, yeah. I mean, at most, at most, they can start a village. But they are, there aren't even enough of them to Takes start a, a village city. to raise a, raise a child. <laughs> <laughs> but there aren't even enough of them to start a city, let alone a yeah. country or a planet, you know? So, okay, so there's that for one. Secondly, what do you think of the people? What are the, what do you think they're like? Vera, Noah, they're a the little ones? bit culty. <laughs> they're super culty, but only in the beginning, only in episode one and two. Yeah, it does relax quite a bit, but yeah, I'm not I'm not sure if I I kind of just kind of gave that up as just well, shit got real <laughs> that they kind of had to drop their oh no, I can't do that. I'm not union approved to do that. <laughs> I couldn't couldn't possibly lean over and grab that thing. No, that's someone else's job. <laughs> yeah, I think that kind of stuff would drop a little bit when you're being eaten and attacked. I guess that is true. But Vera starts off as a really arrogant shit. <laughs> yeah. I do not like her. Uh, up until about part three at which point i go oh really you know what you're great i, I actually think i liked her quite early on <laughs> oh really yeah do you mean while she is quote an independent sort of bird said by harry <laughs> as she is defibrillating herself <laughs> or do you mean when she's being a fantastic doctor in saying she will either survive or die it's true <laughs> okay yeah no, that's true that is true no i don't know there's something about her just very straightforward it's like a robot att- attack to everything it's just like yeah, you know, sometimes that's what you need, especially when there's only you <laughs> on this space station looking after stuff. It's like, it's my way or the highway. <laughs> the, uh, fair points, all fair points. No, I don't know. Yeah, she's she's a bit brash at the start. She and is. She, she loosens up a bit. I prefer her when she's on her own, when she is with Noah. It becomes incredibly clear how condescending they are, how, how unpleasant yeah. as individuals they are. There's a conversation that they have where they're talking about how, oh, these people are clearly uh, regressives. Yes. <laughs> they're going to taint our society. Exactly. And, and I mean, it's basically like, oh, we are the purebloods and they are the regress, they are the, <laughs> the half-bloods or whatever. And, and, but we all thought that they would die in the process of being frozen. What a shame that they woke up prematurely and clearly sabotaged this with their incompetence. <laughs> but, but in that conversation, okay. Two points. One, they talk about how their plan had a, quote, 7% stretch factor and how it had been, quote, compact evaluated. But also, they refer to the Doctor and everyone else as down, as a dawn timers. Dawn timers? Exactly. Explain what you mean. (laughs) I assume that this is meant to be a reference to them being primitive, as in they come from a different time. They are from the dawn of time. 
they come from a time pre being cryogenically frozen. But in this draft of the script, they would not know that. Oh, really? Right? I don't know. I, I, think think so. I feel like I just had like three conversations and I melded them into one. <laughs> I apologize for that. I feel like there are, A, they're very unsympathetic characters in the beginning, the way that they're written. Yeah. And B, that might be an influence of an earlier version of the script where they were written to be different types of characters so that they refer to these people that they only know as either stowaways or people who actually were frozen alongside them right but who somehow See, were unfrozen and then sabotaged yeah, everything that's the thing i i took it that they were saboteurs like they they sort of a captain mud type crew oh i don't know that reference star trek oh. harry mud oh wait no i think i do know that but I know it from Discovery. Oh. Possibly. Yeah, it's fine. Don't. He's in Discovery as well. Yeah. Um, he... No, not he. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I think, I think that's why I assume by the, they meant with Progressive, is that at some point there must have been a decision on Earth that basically we're going to save who we deem worthy and everyone else is going to be left here. And they've made an assumption that the people, oh, that, some of those people, people that left there somehow got up to the space station. Doesn't Noah even say, though, that, oh, but we included a certain amount of regressives, but we didn't think that they would survive the process? Like, their genes weren't strong enough to survive the process. Oh, I don't know. I think he does say I think that's the 7% stretch factor and the compact evaluated plan and whatever. Oh, I thought the stretch factor was all about, um, like, resources. and so, Oh, I see. Because so they, they're, they're up there, and they're going to have to survive up there and get down to the planet, and obviously deal with whatever situation they've got and it's like well if we're a hundred individuals we can feed each other with the supplies we've got and stuff like that if we're a hundred and oh i see 107 (laughs) that's very easy (laughs) so they've allowed for they've allowed for seven stowaways or for seven children being born in cryosleep (laughs) well not you know but very early on they can they can handle that if even if the earth is totally ruined and they can't grow crops or whatever like that's what I took it to be. But. Okay. No, that makes that makes way more sense than what I just said. However, I have a little bit of trivia, okay. which, which might also corroborate a different viewpoint. So that, as in a different viewpoint of theirs. This was written in two goals. Uh, originally, this was written by Mr. John Lucarotti, a uh, relatively prolific writer. He wrote Marco Polo, classic. The Aztecs, classic. The Massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve, yeah. Um, and then the uh, novelizations thereof. But he also he also wrote this, and it was the first time that he had written one of these in ages. And when he wrote it, it was a little bit outdated. Uh-huh. And it wasn't as great as the BBC wanted it to be. He'd already done a, a heck of a lot of work. So he got paid. He got some sort of weird partial credit, which I did not spot in the end credits, at least not of the version that I saw. And instead, the whole thing, the episode as such was taken by a chap named Robert Holmes, who also wrote tons and tons of stuff, and rewritten by him, redrafted by him. And some of the elements of the original Lucarotti script are still here. Right. The base premise is Lucarotti's base premise. But then Robert Holmes, who had written a bunch of other stuff uh, and who had worked on a ton of Pertwee stuff, he modernized it and he made it slightly more hooey. And I wonder, I wonder if in the Lucarotti version, the interesting clash between people here is not, were you frozen, were you not frozen? It's, are you from the uh, you know, 17th millennium, or are you a 1970s person, and thus a person from the dawn of time? Mm, possibly. It's a theory. 
Anyway, sorry. I've spent way too much time on this one thing that may not even be true. Please take over. Please, please, please. Uh, well, just quickly wrapping that up. According to Wikipedia, he is not credited, actually. Oh, okay. On, sc- on screen. All right. Um, which sucks, really. At least, at least he's there in, in Wikiland. But... Yeah. Thank, thank goodness for Todd's Wiki. So, a very minor thing. Okay. But I noted this as Capaldi does it. Oh. Which is the yo-yo <gasps> yes. testing gravity. Yeah. It's in my notes. It's in my notes. Um, and I had a quick look on TARDIS Wikia this time to see if this is a big thing that actually crops up with a lot of doctors. Okay. Because as I remembered it, it was my first time seeing it when, when Capaldi, Capaldi did, did it. it. On the moon. I actually can't remember the context, but yes, I, I, I guess you're probably right. I think so. But it was the fact that he was he was using it to test gravity. It wasn't just, oh, I've got a yo-yo in pocket, I'm playing with it. Yeah. And TARDIS Wikia seems to say that the yo-yos crop up from time to time. Oh, really? Apparently, the Pertwee referred to himself as being on some kind of galactic yo-yo, or a galactic yo-yo, and he had a yo-yo in his pockets at some point. Okay. In some kind of... I don't know, it's saying prose. Oh, so it's from one of the novelizations, or one yeah. of the novels, rather, sorry. That's what I mean. But I, th- I think this might be the first time where the Doctor actually whips it out and does something with it. Pretty sure it is. Yeah. I don't remember having seen it before. I- yeah, no, it's it's lovely. <laughs> yeah. It feels like a very Tom Baker thing to do. I mean, that and just the general tempo and ambience of this serial, compare that to what we very recently saw with Pertwee. Can you imagine Pertwee whipping out a yo-yo? <laughs> no. And also just... Let's talk about tempo. This is a four-episode, relatively serious serial yeah, with a lot of downtime, a lot of contemplation, very dramatic soliloquies and so on, compared to what we had just a couple of serials ago. But it actually gets some action in there as well. You mean the laser scenes? Well, we get... So the very first episode, not long after the yo-yo scene, I think, Harry and the Doctor are pinned down by an automated gun. Oh, I forgot about that. Of yeah, some yeah. kind. You're right. And I actually really loved that scene. Where it's a fantastic just scene, you're right. Moving the desk around and <laughs> Harry's suit, uh, shoe gets zapped. And <laughs> both of them. Yeah, yeah, by the end I of it. I love that he then just walks around with his shoes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> For a brief second, I thought the scarf was just gone. It's just I like, know. But I'm not quite sure. It seemed to not it, even be singed by the end of it. It gets burned. I mean, he puts, it puts it out. It starts smoking. Yeah. He puts it out, yeah. Uh, Same re- with his hat. Oh, he's brilliant. Yeah, hat. Okay. You're right, that's a fantastic scene, in which we also get to see the sonic screwdriver being used as a screwdriver to yes. detach the table from the floor. Exactly. And also, did you notice, we talked about this in the last classic review, the sonic screwdriver does have that little parabolic antenna attached to the end. I did not notice that, but well noted. I, I feel like they must have added it, I mean, they added it in robots, and yeah. then there must have been just people on set going to... Yeah, but that looks so much cooler. <laughs> I just leave it on, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, it will be a pain to have to do it every time. Every time, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's also a sonic lance. <laughs> yeah. And there's, there's a scene where he gets the cricket ball out of his pocket as yes. well, which we've alluded to already. Which we're going to have so much more of, I suspect, in with the next Doctor. Oh, yeah. Davison is a huge cricket fan. As in, his Doctor is a huge cricket fan, as He's I recall. Basically dressed in cricket attire oh yeah absolutely cricket white isn't it yeah Yeah. i don't remember many serials with davison but the one i remember there's a massive montage of him just bowling (laughs) on a cricket pitch (laughs) yeah yeah so i i was like just super super loving this serial through the first episode Uh, same here like (laughs) i I think i started losing it a little bit okay in the subsequent episodes but any particular points i think i've kind of felt like it just 
settled into a, a little bit too obvious a pattern. That there was a bad thing on the Ark, the space station. I think the portrayal of Noah was really good, actually, with him turning into a Wurren and his yeah. humanity kind of showing through. And that, like we've commented on this before, where someone just has like a kind of deathbed epiphany or something or sacrifices themselves and is like oh yes they were such a good guy because they died for that person whilst being a dick throughout their entire life to that person um that's a very good point but this this but was a proper does, this is way more meaningful oh yeah. absolutely absolutely otherwise humanity would still be at risk yeah uh, he, like, he does a fantastic thing this, this is a proper sacrifice and this is like your first introduction, you've, you've said this already, right? But your first introduction to Noah, particularly with him and Vera talking about the Doctor and Co. Yeah, they're dreadfully anti. Yeah, and yeah. and him more than anyone, like he zaps the Doctor. Yeah, like to basically get him out of the picture, and it, you feel like he probably would have actually quite liked to kill him there and then, but maybe didn't quite know if that was the sensible thing to do. Maybe maybe needed to just check the situation a bit. It, it, it was so incredibly sinister that when he immediately after having lasering the doctor, uh, lasered the doctor, when he then calls Vera, I was almost entirely sure that he was going to lie about what he did. Uh-huh. I was almost entirely sure that he was going to say, oh, the doctor tried to attack me and I had to yeah. dispatch him or something like that. Self-sacrifice being the segue the doctor's ready to sacrifice himself as well at the end. Yes. And that, I mean, sorry, we're jumping back and forth yeah, beginning yeah. to end, but that surprised me. My goodness, did that surprise me. Yeah. Just tells Harry, oh, take care of Sarah Jane, will you? And to uh, anonymous crew member I have I met, like, hi, guy I met five minutes <laughs> ago, <laughs> go save yourself. No point in both of us dying. <laughs> I think I might have been watching it a bit too cynically at that point. I'm not sure. Because I, I just didn't expect it to be a proper sacrifice or... Like, like clearly I, he's gonna I, he's gonna survive, but yeah. I, but I didn't I didn't expect the other guy to take his place. I oh, think I, see, I, yeah. t- I expected more. The doctor kind of knew there was a way out, sort of situation. Oh, I see. So that was actually surprising that he just decks the doc, and I think that's what happened, isn't it? He, yeah, he does. He just punches him he out, him and, out and puts him in some sort of weird. Yeah, I didn't quite get safety cupboard. How he put him <laughs> in a safety cupboard. <laughs> <laughs> handily underneath the jets of the, the rocket that's about to fire. But. So I think this goes hand in hand with the evolution of the conversations between Vera and Noah, and also, one thing in particular, the linguistic understandings and misunderstandings between the space station crew and our protagonists. Because in, in part one, for example, Vera doesn't even understand half of what they're saying. Mm. It's like, oh, you have this weird regressive uh, surface speak, you know, like, yeah. oh, I don't understand what you're saying. She didn't even understand, was it the word joke or laugh or, yeah, I can't remember which word it, it was. was. I think it was joke, yes. And like, oh, yes, we had a lot of joke before as well. You know, there is that thing and they, they don't keep that up. Thank goodness for that because yeah. it would have gotten tedious. But that's something that creates a distance. It creates a barrier between us, the audience, who don't misunderstand these things and the future humans but by the end of this serial we are on the exact same level there is no longer any misunderstanding between vera and the doctor there's a point in episode three or in part three where i made a note of the other guys possibly the guy who sacrifices himself at the end he uses the expression there's been a snitch up yeah which does not sound like something that vera would have understood in part one yeah i I kind of got the feeling because those two guys get revived together. So do you think maybe they are part of the regressives that were frozen in the first place? Not necessarily regressives, but like (laughs) they could have been cockneys or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) 
they're just kind of like revived to have like a bit of normality <laughs> in, yeah. am- in amongst this i don't know because they're they're not quite like on the ball straight away of what's going on in the situation there's a little bit of i think apprehension of like what should be done like everyone else has kind of like had a bit of a yeah building up to the shit fest that is surrounding them and they're just like no hang on wait well, that's a bit ridiculous i was like oh no okay fine do that um <laughs> But yeah, they they kind of get from zero to a hundred pretty quickly to then just be going around shooting things with lasers and yeah, that's true. going off into rockets and sacrificing themselves and you know. But isn't that also because they are more like you and I? Like they are more like yeah, I, I think you know twentieth slash twenty first century people. Yeah, compared to I've, the era. I, yeah, I've no idea if we can say they were the regressives that are referred to, but they wouldn't have the conversation that Vera and Noah had. I feel. No, absolutely yeah. not. Even if there's no narrative background, no sort of law given to these characters by the the writers or the production team, I think there is a conscious effort to make future humans more relatable to us present day humans over the course of this four arc. Yeah, four no, I arc. think that's probably fair observation. So I, I believe these two are called Lysit and Rogan. Oh, yes. Rogan is the one who sacrifices himself. Uh-huh. Lysit is the one that just gets killed. Okay. By a, a grub at one point. I'm trying to remember that scene. I think most of it is off camera, but there there is the... I, I guess it's the lava version of the the Wirren that is kind of crawling around Oof. like a caterpillar. <laughs> it's it's very the blobby. Yeah. I, I mean, I, like I, the blob. I could not help but see a person inside that that green <laughs> that a sleeping bag, sleeping bag made of, uh, yeah <laughs> likewise with noah and his transformation at the start is like oh, that's, into that's bubble, bubble wrap, wrap. yeah <laughs> you painted bubble wrap green what well that's uh, fine that's completely fine yeah and actually the makeup and the extra bubble wrap he gets when he's like half transformed is amazing it's really well done yeah I much prefer that to some shitty CGI in New Who. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I I think we've got to the point where CGI can be incredible, like as in in twenty nineteen. Yeah, but yeah, the the early days, even to the the mid days of of CGI, like you can see how badly it dates, and the technology for doing practical effects had decades behind it, and it was just like, why would you throw that away? <laughs> yeah, and shove it as CGI, but. It's it's what needs to happen to progress, I suppose. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but they did do some nice sets in this little serial. And the flies themselves, the the brundle fly, the wirren, when they're fully grown, I quite like them. They had a sense, certain charm about them. They're, I mean, they're obviously a bit more on the naff side compared yeah. to the rest of the production. The comparison that I make automatically is with the um, the web planet, which is also it's an insectoid bunch of aliens they go to a moon yeah with giant ants giant uh butterflies what else a spider ish creature etc and there are larvae there as well and they obviously have better effects and stuff now but this isn't super duper far off the the production values of the web planet and we shat on it in that episode, but now I really feel, I think very fondly back to it. I'll show you a few pictures of what larvae looked then and what larvae look like now. I think the issue I take with the Wirren costume, and I'm yeah. going to call it a costume, uh-huh. is you have to understand what you can move, what you can put someone inside, 
and what is just going to wibble around. Okay, I've just whipped up some pictures from the web planet. Here we have a larvae on the right side. Uh, ladies and gents, go to whoback1.com, just search for web planet, you'll find this. And we have a butterfly. Oh, I've seen that guy before, he looks awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I think you get away That's with a lot, lot more when it's black and white, though. <laughs> You put colour on that and it would probably look terrible. It actually doesn't look but, that bad. Actually, but, but does this look that dissimilar from what we just watched? Not, not super duper, not really, right? No. no. But that was the thing with the, the Wurren, though, is that they had, I want to say, eight random spindly legs that were just kind of flap, did, flapping around whenever it moved. And it's like, well... You've, you've gone to the trouble of sticking them on, but you didn't think about what, what that would look like. Yeah, what is the function? We, we get to see a, a couple of close-ups of singular legs opening doors or turning knobs yeah. and stuff. And that looks terrible as well. That but. looks absolutely dreadful because there's no control over it. But yeah. No, you're right. Th- there's not much work done on that. Like, but as a prop, as a costume, if there were any way to make a sexy Wirren costume, <laughs> I would cosplay as that. <laughs> you know, actually, the first note I have about the Wirren is that I thought, oh, a giant bug has just fallen on Harry as a kind of comedy thing. I, like, <laughs> I, was, I was thinking that was a terrible effect. And then you get to the second episode and you realize it was a dead one. It actually did fall on him. Yeah. You know, I I thought that was just a really cheap effect of it, like, it actually attacking him. Oh, I see. I see. <laughs> like, I, I, did you get that at the end of the first episode? Did you think like Harry was in danger or? I thought so. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I think that's what it's meant to be. But you kind of, you feel like he's in danger, but at the same time realize that looks terrible. <laughs> and it's, so I, I kind of did wonder, like, is that intentional? Were they, they playing on the kind of cheap budget that Doctor Who was kind of known for. Um, I don't think so. I think they took a lot of care to make those costumes as elaborate as possible. And I'm sure that they succeeded in having a lot of kids and young adults in 1976, 75, sorry, uh, watching this at home and that cliffhanger of part one just screaming. (laughs) Oh my goodness, that's so exciting. I can't wait for next week's episodes, you know. Okay, question for you. Why is every message that is recorded in the future recorded with such attempted gravitas? Is this the um, the leader of Earth? Everyone. But oh. yes, also the leader of Earth in part three. The Welcome to the face of humanity. <laughs> <laughs> I think she had a recording very early on as well. Um, is she the high minister or something like this? Okay. Some, yeah, I think that's yeah. actually the title. Yeah, her... her dramatic voice was a little bit over the top <laughs> to put it lightly i kind of got that feeling from vera at the very start as well <laughs> it's like you know she's laying this on a bit thick but then that kind of became her character oh no fair enough i guess maybe that also just as part of the writing there there are so many not so many but there are so many more soliloquies in this dramatic soliloquies than we've had in in past classic who yeah the doctor's one is fantastic when he steps into the cryo chamber and he's talking about the indomitable human race. Yeah. I didn't make any notes of the, the whole thing. Well, sorry, I made so, a couple of notes. They've survived cosmic wars, plural, and holocausts, plural. Yeah. That's the only note I've, I made of that. I, I think it ends with ready to outsit eternity. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, it's a beautiful, beautiful monologue. No, it was. Tom Baker is amazing. Let's just... Let's <laughs> yeah, so we can have a Tom, Tom Baker love fest. Yeah, let's... <laughs> Tom Baker, who masterfully devil, uh, delivers these dramatic monologues, the, these incredible soliloquies, then at the same time, ha- he, he walks that tightrope between that deadly seriousness and just 
buffoonery being this this jocular doctor the the scene that i'm thinking of in particular is when he comes to after having been stunned and he just finishes the sentence that he was saying before oh, yeah. he was being stunned oh that's lovely he's wonderful my goodness i love this guy and throwing the jelly babies at vera at the end yeah have some jelly babies vera <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's proven himself to be very versatile very quickly this is a very different feeling episode uh well serial to the last one his first one like I, I felt like he was a bit more fun with the robot like he was doing some serious stuff definitely but the, the episode itself was or the serial itself was also a little less serious yeah probably true it's more of a pertwee um, serial than a baker serial. i mean if we if we're gonna say that this is a like true to the bone baker serial yeah because i think his first one kind of established that he can do the kind of problem solving the sciencey stuff yeah but he's gonna he's gonna have his little bit of kind of weirdness about it and he's gonna be very relaxed about stuff he's gonna put his feet up and shit and pro- yeah be a bit less predictable yeah i guess i guess that's the thing and i, I think most of that does carry through to this serial because we do get scenes where he's the, the scene where he works out that the alarm clock has been turned off like that's probably a couple of minutes i don't know at least at least a minute okay. of him wandering around looking at controls and like sussing stuff out and uh, <laughs> and i i thought that was lovely actually there was like some sometimes in the classics i kind of feel like they they dwell on more mundane things for too long like we get a weird shot of someone carefully opening a lock yeah or strolling down a corridor whereas there was a tremendous I, amount of that in Pertwee. yeah i felt more in in this serial in particular but hopefully more in in baker in general that they understand that he can kind of carry the more mundane things in an interesting way if they are interesting so it, it's like this is him solving something so it's important it's interesting let's watch that that bit over there he might do with a lot of gravitas it's opening a door but that's not very interesting let's not focus on that yeah that's a fair point he also allows other people to solve problems there's an element of um so reverse sexism, or there's a bit of commentary on, on sexism in this serial yeah. as well, obviously. And there's there's the one scene when Sarah Jane is crawling through the, whatever it is, the... the air vent, I think it is. I guess so. The Jeffrey's tube. And she's just about ready to give up, and he drops some dreadful sexist chatter. He really does. <laughs> he lays it on very thick, and it's very clear. I mean, he's certainly, he's making a point of it just to uh, encourage her to... Well, to give it her all, to yeah. do what he knows that she's capable of doing. And, and uh, I mean, she proves herself and him uh, right in the process. But that's also something that if a prior doctor had done that, if Pertwee had done that, it would have come across as a little bit of... It would have been more of a carry-on reference. <laughs> yeah. And if uh, Trouncen or Hardnell would have done it, they would have just been products of their time, yeah. unfortunately. Because I don't, he doesn't have a moment where he clarifies that he was being supportive, does he? I think you just get that from his character. Oh, does he not say that? Maybe he doesn't say that, but it's clear. Yeah, that he no, wants. no, it's is hundred percent clear that, Absolutely that right. he is not meaning what he's saying. He's yeah. he's using it as a motivation, and that's it. that's it entirely. The Wurren become a protagonist that is is an interesting foe in a way. Yeah, 
but you never I, I never really got a massive sense of threat i think I there's something about it being an insect and it being a flimsy costume is that the, the problem maybe i don't know about the the flimsiness of the costumes necessarily you can kind of just accept that but it, you know at some point you have to look at it and go well that's effectively a large caterpillar yeah crawling around and okay that guy has been killed by that large cap- caterpillar but but there's a there's another element to it as well i feel which is similar to zombie horror that if it touches you in quote unquote the wrong way then you will turn into one of them it's true so it's it's very difficult to fight them either they'll eat you or they'll turn you into them and you don't want either option, obviously. But it, I don't know. I think it's, it's possibly a good reference because I think I'm actually not a massive fan of zombie stuff. I find it quite boring and like, being done to death and stuff. So when they do it, uh-huh. uh, when they play with the concept, I find it a bit more interesting. Like they make fast zombies or you focus on like one zombie or something, you know, and it, it becomes more interesting because of that. So I, that's why I think Noah was a particularly good character in this because you saw him transforming and... But becomes... he does the standard zombie thing as well. The, the, he's the guy standing in the back of the crowd who doesn't want to tell anyone that he's been bitten. And he knows that he's transforming into something, but he's True. keeping it to himself. He, Noah walks around with his hand in his pocket and he knows that his hand is covered in bubble wrap, but he does not show anyone. Yeah, but he's being an absolute dick at that point. <laughs> That's true. And he's <laughs> it, not doing a he's great already, job of blending in. Yeah, he's guess, not really but, in control of that But point. he's trying. I mean, yeah. he's trying to hide what's happening to him. Yeah. And this has happened in, I mean, okay, so aside from the zombie reference, this has happened on Classic Who in a bunch of different episodes before. One episode that I can think of is Inferno, where people are being turned into these sort of disco werewolves. And uh, the second someone starts noticing that something's happening, it's just like, oh shit, I have fur on my hands, or I'm going to put my hands in my pockets, or I'm going to wear gloves, or whatever. Yeah. And um, actually, yeah, I think he wears gloves. I don't know where I'm going with that. <laughs> uh, oh, Wirren. Yeah, so Wirren are... I have no trouble seeing the scariness of Wirren. Okay. I find the, the costume very flimsy, but charmingly so. And maybe that detracts from some of the horror that maybe was intended in the 70s, but as a, as a foe, on a purely sort of theoretical level, I find that we're in very, very scary. I think, I think maybe I just would have rather, perhaps it was just the adults that were around. Cause oh, I, as opposed I, to the larvae. Yeah, I, I can look past the, the flimsiness of the, that costume. I, I think it was just something about, or even if it was just this weird kind of slimy thing that you didn't really know how it was getting around yeah. and all this kind of stuff. It's just seeing a guy in a sleeping bag. <laughs> I I really struggled to move beyond that a little bit. Oh, no, fair enough. I liked it, but it, uh, yeah. that's fine. Diggles to bus. I've just seen a note of mine. Sorry to backpedal, but we talked about the doctor's faux sexism before. I had forgotten this point in part four to say that the doctor is ignoring Sarah Jane very much like Hartnell, the first Doctor, ignored Susan Foreman, his uh, granddaughter. That there are there are at, at least two scenes in the serial oh, yes. where Sarah's trying to make a point, and the Doctor's just like, "Be quiet, Sarah." I mean, he doesn't say it, but he might as well add, yeah. "Men are having a conversation," you know, <laughs> or grown-ups are talking, and he he treats her like a child who has nothing to contribute to the situation, whereas in, in actual fact, she knows what's going on. She's the one in the know. I think the first one is she's found a secret doorway. Yes, exactly. And she goes through and gets locked in yeah. and gets teleported in away. In the twin fountain rooms. Yeah. what it's called now, but... The girl, girl who waited type Yes, thing. exactly, yeah. yeah. I forget the exact setup of the second one, but she blatantly has the answer. 
Yeah. And he does eventually, after talking to someone else, go, oh, you were trying to say something, Sarah. I believe that this precedes her then volunteering to go through the Jeffrey's tube because no one else can. And it, in that scene, it felt a little bit like, well, I gain no attention, no respect. I have to prove myself. Like, there's an element of, yeah. look how brave I am. And she is incredibly courageous, but, you know, but it's, it's still, it's presented as like, uh, why don't I do it? I don't have childbearing hips and no one thinks that I'm, oh. you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. like everyone considers me expendable. So why don't I do it? I'm pretty sure, actually, it's it's her idea that there is um, another power source in oh, really? in the transport vessel. That's so that this entire scheme is basically her idea. That's super clever. Yeah, yeah. I don't understand why the Doctor is doing that. Why he is going? Oh, not now. Because I'm pretty sure both times he's not having a life or death conversation. Or no, yeah. that's true. That's basically the only situation. He's talking to men where... he's never met before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like it's very easy to say, "Oh yes, companion, I've travelled with for ages. Please join in this conversation." Yeah, and he doesn't. He actually turns to her and says, "Shut the fuck up." It seems very first doctory. Hartnell did that all the time. He did yeah. that with his granddaughter, and he did that with with other companions as well. Well, I'm hoping it doesn't become a thing for. Baker, but yeah i hope so too but we'll see i mean he's going to travel with sarah jane for quite some time okay completely different comments in prior classic serials that we've watched pertwee serials in particular the previously on doctor who has been a very long part of the episode but this time we get these zero bullshit previously on doctor who sequences of here are the last five seconds of last week's episode yeah, that's true, actually. And I wonder if that's... Maybe the writing is so dense now that no one feels like they have to pad this serial. There is there is so much to say. No, fuck it. No, if we're going to waste 30 seconds on something, we're going to waste it on the ladder descending. <laughs> yeah. Or they've just realized that the audience isn't stupid. <laughs> like Also, yeah. It's very possible that there's been... Unlike me, they can remember things from a week ago. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I, f- I feel like, you know, we just commented on this before, uh, last week, in fact, but there, there, there definitely has to be a mental note amongst the production crew that this is a different show now. This is yeah. this is something we can keep kind of tweaking little bits, and why not do that? Like Yeah, true. Maybe they got a lot of complaints. Like, why am I watching the same two minutes of the show I watched last week? <laughs> Points of view. <laughs> yeah, that's. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case. Yeah. So we did actually have a earlier thing about the Doctor almost sacrificing himself. Oh, really? You, what was you that? noted previously that right at the end he goes to sacrifice yeah. himself, but yeah. he plugs himself into the oh, Wirren's right. brain to try yes, and get... Yes, you're right. And whilst it's not a kind of direct sacrifice, he wasn't that sure that he was going to survive that, I think. Yeah, I, I never really... Well, I say never as though I watch this every single day, but like, I mean, I didn't quite understand why Vera was ready to shoot him in the face when he seemed a little <laughs> discombobulated. <laughs> well... Did you think that, that, I mean, what's the risk? What is the risk? Is it that he's going to think that he's a Wirren and try to kill people? Or is it that he will turn into an actual Wirren? I would assume more the former, that he would just act a bit Wirren-like and might attack people. But, okay. But we've already established that, oh, maybe we haven't at this point. I'm not sure. But those guns can stun. <laughs> like, she doesn't have to actually kill him. That, oh, that's true. But everyone else in the room seemed very, well, I mean, everyone else being Sarah Jane, basically. 
And yeah. Harry, maybe, if he was there as well. Sarah Jane certainly was like, no, don't shoot him. Which is like, oh, yeah. no, don't stun him. That's not a problem. <laughs> yeah, stun him. I don't care if you stun him. He'll be back to normal in 15 minutes. I guess if we're saying stunning is like tasering, it, it'd still be kind of like, no, don't taser him. <laughs> oh, okay, that's true. <laughs> that's that's going to be... He's going to have a headache. A, a little bit annoying. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think tasering is worse than that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. That's super gross, by the way. That he cuts out the Wirren's brain. <laughs> yeah, which then ends and up... just walks with it in his hand. Looking a bit like a, a bald cap. It's, it's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it looked like something that you wear when you go to the pool. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I think I wasn't paying the greatest of attention at that point when he was messing around with the dead Wirren. And then he just walks off with this floppy bit of kind of skin-coloured thing. And I was like, oh... Where did he get that from? What's that? <laughs> did he scalp the Wirren? And it's like, uh, that's the brain? No, that's, that's not the brain. No, prop department. No, no, no. You gave no, him the no, wrong no, prop no, here. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> also, flies don't have brains as far as I'm aware. Do they not? I don't think so. I think they have a rudimentary nervous system, but there's yeah. nothing else there. Well, this is a Wirren. It's different. Because like, these Wirren blatantly have brains. Oh, yeah, no, they, you're right. They are very intelligent creatures. Yeah. I know that we have at least one biologist in our, <laughs> in our listenership. Wait, hang on. I'm going to look it up. Damn it. Yes, flies do have brains, but these these are non-comparable to the complex human brains. They do have nerve ganglia, photoreceptor cells, which form the compound eyes, making them highly sensitive to motion. They communicate by taste and chemical signals, which have nothing to but the reaction of brain. This is terrible English. Who wrote this? I apologize to everyone in podcast land. Flies do have brains. But their brains are more like a computer, not an AI. Both sounds it. Yeah, I guess so. A very rudimentary computer. Yeah, okay. Analyzer stimuli. Okay, super duper different question for you. Do you think Ridley Scott watched this serial and then just went, hmm, you know what? If we just give the Wirren acid for blood <laughs> and maybe you have Vera run around braless in teeny tiny pants towards the end of Act 3, <laughs> this could be a Hollywood blockbuster. I don't know. It's interesting to date sci-fi stuff, actually. It's very similar. Yeah. When did when did Alien come out? That's in the 70s at some point, right? Yeah, I'm assuming later than this. I think it was more towards the end of the 70s. I'm looking it up. I'm looking it up. 79. Yeah. 1979. I should have just said it because that's what I had in my head. <laughs> I believe it was 79. Super similar. Yeah. Maybe that's it. Well, Maybe that's the only observation then. But I don't know. I mean, how unique is it? alien on spaceship that attacks like, people while they're in cryostasis i guess there is that. i guess that doesn't happen in alien one necessarily it happens in alien three in the opening credits to alien three i don't know the series that well you could sell that thing doctor sell what thing as in the very very beginning of part one harry sullivan uh, steps out of the tardis and is super impressed and just goes you could sell that thing oh <laughs> right yes he <laughs> does <laughs> I like Harry. Yeah. <laughs> That's really good. That would be really helpful to people. <laughs> I think our little conversation earlier actually has, has made it quite an interesting retake of this episode in my brain. Oh, yeah? Because I, I generally was a little bit angry of, of how Sarah Jane was being sidelined. And then Ooh. I think you're right. That actually, Harry doesn't do a hell of a lot. He gets he gets some nice lines. and Harry is the buffoon he, in this one. He interacts with a lot of people yeah. and gets to shoot a laser gun, but doesn't do a lot beyond that, really. Not really. I think Sarah Jane stays as, as the companion. And I, I think, actually, I'm now kind of looking at this serial going, okay, so why is Harry here? 
which is quite weird actually because the first episode totally kind of flips them around because you know it's the doc and harry under the desk hiding from the automated gun and it's harry's shoe that's being used to yeah like they're they're having a real kind of close relationship but you i think you're absolutely right like i know this is we talked about this already but (laughs) like the rest of the the serial the other three episodes i don't know if his um if his presence is really warranted <laughs> yeah i don't know either i mean okay so we're going to talk about this in in a couple of weeks time and and we probably shouldn't speculate too much but if if we view this and the next episode or the next serial sorry as one major story arc and who knows if it continues after that if we at least view these two the next part is set on earth it features some Tarans, so I'm going to say there's going to be a lot of action. Yeah, quite Right? Possibly. There's going to be some warfare, some ground yeah. warfare. Presumably... You think this is his moment? I think, yeah. I think he's going to be more prominent in the next one. Yeah. And if anything, then Sarah Jane, unfortunately, just given, given the nature of the show around about this time, I suspect that she's going to be the damsel in distress. Well, we'll have to wait and yeah, see, we'll I guess. See. We'll see, we'll see. I just want to make a quick side note to... Uh-huh. To a thing I tried to, I think I failed a little bit to, to discuss in the, the last New Who episode that we, oh, really? we talked about, which is just the, the slight possibility that the TARDIS ever just travels in space and not time. Oh, right. Because at the very start of this, we are told that they were meant to be taking a trip to the moon. Yes, without travelling through time. Well, I think you would probably make that assumption, wouldn't you? Well, otherwise, I mean, Harry's not going to look out at the moon and go, this this looks like the future of the moon. Exactly. <laughs> like, why, why would you go to a different time of the moon? Yeah. That was literally just, we're going to the moon. Yeah. So that was the intention. The intention was just to travel in space. But then it all got fucked up and they've ended up, I think we established like five, six thousand years in the future. So maybe it, ne- maybe it never actually happens in an episode that they just travel in Wait, space. Wait, more, more than that. Uh, the year 16,000 something. Oh, 16,000. 16,000. Okay. Yeah. They have been asleep for 5,000 years, I think. Right. I think so. Well, they're, they're, at the very least, according to Tolly's Wicker, this is the year 16,000. Yeah. I see what you're saying, though. Yeah. Hmm. Sooner or later, we will get one of these, I'm sure. I don't know. I'll, I'll try and keep it in my head, and then uh, I'll bore everyone with it. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, New Who probably does it all the time. Like, Rose was always hopping around. Yeah, that's true. Place. I don't know. Yeah, Whitaker just crashed into Graham's chair or whatever it was in his living room. Yeah. And I, his legs aren't even off. I feel like that's a slightly different thing. That's just okay. going back home. Okay, yeah, no, no, yeah. I, I take your point. It's, it's like taking a trip, like a, an point. intentional trip to somewhere that would be exciting that's not Earth. They go to Norway. Whitaker goes to Norway. Well, but it's still Earth. I, I don't. Oh, I see. I'm revising saying. it all the time. <laughs> Some somewhere off world where it's just like you know what this is what twentieth century Alpha century looks like you know yeah yep fair <laughs> and now it is time to rate this did we laugh or hate this bing bong bing bong hey la 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 ratings so it's right about now that I realise oh it's probably been a while since I was the first one out the gates when it comes to <laughs> our ratings. <laughs> Uh, I have, we just took a little break, ladies and gentlemen of Podcast Land, and uh, I've written down a score. Here's how I've reached this score. First off, Tom Baker is brilliant. The fourth Doctor is everything that I remember the fourth Doctor being, and as a second venture into his tenure, this is a tremendously ambitious and impressive piece. The tone is way more serious than I remembered it being, and it's so much more serious than we had with Pertwee. 
And it's a very refreshing change of pace. I said before, I don't want to repeat myself, but I did say before that Tom Baker walks this this tightrope between Sirius and, and, and Buffoon. And, and I think that's why I love him. And I think that's probably why most people love him. Yeah. While Tom Baker is brilliant, Harry Sullivan is superfluous and fun. <laughs> Sarah Jane is brave and overacting. Oh, my goodness. Oh, you think? Yes. Oh, th- there are so many... Uh, <laughs> So many times when she just cries out something like, oh, what's that? Oh, what's going on? And it, it just screams of, well, I mean, literally of overacting. Yeah. But she's incredibly courageous and, and she does a spiffing job. The, I quite enjoyed the Soylent Green-esque euthanasia scene when she's being frozen. If you haven't seen Soylent Green, watch Soylent Green. It's a classic. A line that I think clarifies what it is that I enjoy about this or much of what I enjoy about this, the... We're in the 30th century. Only the 30th century, says Harry Sullivan. Oh, late 29th, early 30th. I feel sure, says the doctor. That's the absurdity of this situation is the normality of my every day. (laughs) Uh, And and I, I love that. Saying that, this is also an era of the doctor's life that is very different from the doctor that we otherwise know. And I think the doctor that we have known previously in Pertwee Uh, What I mean is, this is a time in his life when he isn't aware of all of mankind's history. He is surprised to hear that they had to leave the Earth, that something went wrong, that they couldn't stick around. All this is new to him. Whereas previously, the second there's an alien, he knew exactly which alien that was, and he knew exactly its role in history. Obviously knew who they've had the chance to learn everything that Tom Baker has learned so far, or is about to learn. But in New Who, there is very rarely a moment when the Doctor encounters any situation that he or she is not fully aware of. If you just say, oh, mankind, uh, 33rd century, boom, snap of the fingers, they know exactly what happened. At the very least, know the protagonist that might be involved. Exactly. But here, that is not the case. And that's also quite refreshing. That's really interesting to me. We get to explore this future scenario along with the Doctor. Then we have the Wirren. Sorry, I'm, I'm waffling on in this, this mini, but we have the Wirren. We've encountered the Wirren before on Who Back When. There was an audiobook review, Wirren Dawn, which JD and I did. And I suggest that no one listens to that because I, <laughs> I am ashamed of how, uh, of what a hater I was. Oh. I think we worked ourselves up. Wirren Dawn for a long time was the episode that we had not yet recorded. Like it, it was a year and a half or whatever, or two years in the making. And then we finally sat down to do it. And I think everyone expected us to hate it. And we expected ourselves to hate it. And consequently, we did. And I feel a little bit bad about that. But now revisiting the origins of the Wirren, I am mightily impressed, even though there are lots of things that I don't understand about them. I don't fully understand how they absorb knowledge by eating people's flesh. What? (laughs) They're impervious to everything but electricity. But there's tons of electricity in the universe. I mean, go past anything that moves and there's probably some electricity... Uh, alongside it. What the the shit is going on? Is it just that they're impervious to everything except being electrocuted? Like most things? (laughs) (laughs) Other science stuff that didn't quite tally with me was he's using photon energy to run the lights. You mean he's using light energy to run the lights? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But then also, bonus points for the surprise at the ending, my notes for that literally just in all caps, wait, what? (laughs) Question mark, exclamation point. Consequently, I can but give this a rather high score, and I have noted down four Ooh. point Ooh. four. 
Ooh. <laughs> oh, I oh believe God, that this that is, is higher than your score then. I love this. It can do much worse and it can probably also do a lot better, but just for its formula, for its tone and for its ambition. Yeah, 4.4. Lovely stuff. Thank you much, Lee Leon, there for your little review. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> This is a weird way around, isn't it? It is. <laughs> like, normally, you're doing that while you're writing down the, the <laughs> like, score. Or oh, I've written a range. I'm just going to delete yeah, yeah. all the other ones. <laughs> yeah, I, I did like this serial. Okay. I'm just going to start with that. Right. I super loved the first episode in particular. Okay. I, I would have been rating this like high fours, I think, if everything had stayed up there with the first episode, even despite how Sarah Jane is treated. Like, I think there was just... A little bit more kind of exposition in a, a nice way of, of a more natural way, I suppose. The doctor was being maybe a little bit more fun and I don't know. He was solving solving problems, but you kind of understood what was going on and it made good viewing and all this kind of stuff. Later on, he's trying to connect a electrical barrier around to keep the the we're at bay and it just gets a bit more kind of convoluted and grander and you just kind of stop caring as much and when it when it's when the scale's brought down i don't know i I just kind of felt a bit more kind of connected to the doctor at the start and um it's like yeah that you're you turned up in the space station you can't breathe like we've got an immediate problem to solve and he just goes about solving it and you're kind of like yeah great doctor's doing stuff it's the best episode of fort boyard ever (laughs) (laughs) I think through the other episodes, it just it became a little bit unclear as to what Sarah Jane and, and Harry were really bringing to the serial. Like, Sarah Jane's already spent most of an episode out of action. Harry's been kind of... Well, not even really acclimatizing. He's, he seemed to have been taken to this like a duck to water, but hmm. also bring in a lot of 70s and past sexism and what have you with him. And I don't know, he's, he's not the useful tool that he could have been sarah jane seems to have been watered down a bit even even after being released from her captivity there's still moments where she seems to be crumbling under the situation and like what we've seen of her in previous serials she would have quite happily have kind of stood up to stuff and and cope with things and yes she gets the moment where she crawls through the tube but she still needs the doctor to insult her effectively to carry on after claiming that she's stuck like she's she's not the strong um industrious adventurous reporter that she is through other serials like and in the previous serial in fact yeah the the very very previous one so i I, yeah i I can't let that slide i feel like they've maybe the last serial was them trying to kind of wrap up the Pertwee era a little bit and that's that scene is the transition but if this is what sarah jane carries on like i'm not okay with it like if this is a one-off fine mm. but i i'm gonna give it a little bit of a kind of negative thumbs down for those kind of things fair enough but i super love how noah was treated through this you start off hating him from the, the get-go and you end up kind of like almost kind of cheering with tears in your eyes for what he does for humanity you know it's that's that's a proper story arc for a character there <laughs> <laughs> um like the same with vera like you don't want to Vera straight away and yet she through her rapport with the doctor and you know becomes someone you care about she's laughing at the end of this yeah and in the beginning she doesn't know what a joke is and the the, the two cheeky chappies that come along and <laughs> 
you know, there's there's a lot in kind of character development and interplay through this serial. You know, I talked before about how I I'm not sure how Doctor Who sits with like the kind of family show it claims to be. Like, and I imagine there are bits of this serial where kids would be just a little bit bored because there's just a lot of talk about how great humanity is or how weird these regressive humans are and you know whether they're the kids are really kind of along for that ride but it's actually written in a good way so it it doesn't matter it's it's not being really dry it's being entertaining so maybe maybe the kids would have lapped that up you know because they they can see the bigger picture with with a bit of understanding and I, i think i think that's the kind of heart of this serial there's a lot of there's a lot of meat to the bone it's it's not just dry content. It's not just filler scenes. There's just a lot of stuff going on. I've written a rating down and oh. I've I've talked myself up. Okay, all right. I've anticipated your rating, so I'm gonna stick with a three. Yeah, I had three point seven. I'm gonna push it up to a three point nine. Oh, 3.9. Oh, my I goodness. I knew it. I knew oh, it. Oh, my goodness. Oh, did I'm it. so proud of myself. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's Excellent. A, it's a good serial. That's a really good review. Nice one. Shall we see what everyone else thinks? Oh, let's do that. Listener minis. Now let's hear from Podcast Land. Max 250, or it would get out of hand. Kablamo, we have myriad listener minis in our inbox. Thank you, everyone, for contributing these. This is fantastic stuff. No less than seven. Seven? That's more than this hand has fingers. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to use this hand to count them. As always, we will be implementing our max 250 word rule, which means that if uh, if you do send us a list of mini that is longer than 250 words, we will select 250 words to read. Uh, most likely, these 250 words will be in sequence. Otherwise, it would make sense. Yes. And most likely, they will be the first 250 words. But we will always include your rating if you have included one in your mini. So here we go. First out of the gates, we have Paul Forber. Hello, Paul. Hi, Paul. Paul starts off. Previous producer Barry Letts commissioned veteran Doctor Who writer to supply stories for fourth Doctor Tom Baker's first season. Script editor Robert Holmes, though, could not keep in touch with writer John Lucarotti on his boat in the Mediterranean. Holmes paid off the scribe and rewrote Ark in Space completely. The story fulfilled a new producer, Philip Hinchcliffe's vision of the Doctor and his companions adventuring in space. They arrived on an apparently deserted space station orbiting Earth in the far future and spent the majority of the first episode exploring, as frequently happened in the series' earlier days. The story's venue was gorgeous and constructed in BBC Studios by designer Roger Murray Leach. Mm. To save money... It would be reused later in the season for a story set in the same place at an earlier time. <gasps> oh, really? Holy moly, that, I am looking forward to that. Intriguing little tidbit there. Yeah, this is excellent trivia, Paul. Thank you so much. Uh, we're going to jump to the uh, end of Paul's mini here. Paul says, Such personal conflict became common in Hinge Cliffs and Holmes' serials. Ooh, this is a little teaser for the bit that we skipped, eh? Um, Either standing in for or complimenting serials' monster. This production's lighting reflected its darker tone visually, and along with the story, fabulous sets, and great performances, particularly by the principal cast, enabled the arc in space to become both a fan favourite and one of the most highly regarded Doctor Who serials ever. 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 And Paul Forber has 
not provided a rating. So I'm going to go ahead and guess. Paul thinks that this is a 4.8. <laughs> is that tr- true, Paul? I, I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm just plucking these numbers out of the ether. This is a great mini, though, and it contains some fantastic, like, serious Whovian knowledge. So please, 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 go to whoback1.com and read this in its full splendor. Thank you so much, Paul. People who are not Paul, high-five Paul online. He is at Wordsmith Paul. Thank you for that review there, Paul. Next Next up. up. (laughs) Go for it. We have Richard Oliver. Hello, Richard Oliver. I, I, I feel like this is the first time that we're having a quote-unquote proper conversation because we've chatted on Facebook a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for sending in a mini. Sorry, I cut you off there, Jim. No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm just super excited to be talking to Richard. Hi there, Richard. I'm just going to nick your surname to say, yes, please, we can have some more. <laughs> um, Richard starts with the Ark in Space. Roger Holmes' first script for Tom Baker's Doctor and the start of Philip Hinchcliffe's reign as producer. One of the most successful eras in all of Doctor Who's history, both classic and new. Mm. Setting the scene there for us, Richard. One of the things, continues Richard, that strikes me in this story is ideas that it shares with Nigel Neal's Quartermass. Quartermass? Quartermass? Quartermass stories, which I will point out. This is actually the first in a mini-series of adventures with the Doctor and his companions, followed by the Santaran experiment, which we did allude to. Yes, that's right. Which links in with Ark in Space, Genesis of the Daleks, then back to Future Earth, or at least Wookiee Hole, <laughs> in Revenge of the Cybermen. Oh, interesting. Hmm. I, I'm super-duper looking forward to Genesis of the Daleks, by the way. Legendary, super-duper legendary serial, and allegedly the, the very, very best Dalek serial ever. Ooh. Yeah. Okay, Richard goes on. Harry's first trip in the TARDIS and Ian Martyr plays him so well as baffled by where he is, but takes it all in his stride, even when he has a giant grasshopper fall on him. It is a grasshopper. How did we not make that connection? (laughs) (laughs) Richard continues, the Doctor has one of his great speeches when he talks about humans and their indomitability as we are taking our first steps into the stars. One of the best speeches in the history of who. Couldn't agree more. Is it just me, or is the wearing corpse at the end of episode one that falls on top of Harry, similar to a scene in Quartermass and the Pit, when a Martian falls down in a spaceship? And talking of Quartermass, Noah and his mutated form is like Victor Caroon when he is becoming the plant alien in the Quartermass experiments. You know what? I'm pretty sure I've seen Quartermass and the Pit, because I'm pretty sure those were, those were all playing on the sci-fi channel <laughs> at some point in the 90s, but I don't remember them. I just heard a lot of whooshes going above my head. <laughs> Unfortunately, we have now reached the 250 word limit, so we're going to jump straight to Richard's rating, and it is, Jim. It is a whopping 4.5 out of 5. A brilliant rating. <laughs> like a genuinely brilliant rating, and only 0.1 away from an oh, even better rating oh, than yes. I say so myself. <laughs> <laughs> Please, ladies and gents, go online and read Richard's Listener Mini in its full splendor. Thank you so much and welcome aboard, Richard. Thank you for that, Richard. Next up, we have Trenton Blaze. Hey there, Trenton. Hello, Trenton. Trenton starts, hey, do you want a good story with a Wirren in it? You do? Well, then this is the story for you. The Ark in Space is definitely the story where the fourth Doctor gets his stride. Robert Holmes was probably unaware that a story where humanity... Flea's Earth wasn't a new concept. The Ark, 1966. Oh, I think Leon might have referenced that. (laughs) And it certainly wouldn't be the last time this plot point would be used. The Beast Below, 2010. But this 
by far is the best execution of it on the show to date. Interesting. This story was producer Philip Hinchcliffe's first story in studio. Outgoing producer Barry Letts originally commissioned the story from John Lucrotti, mm-hmm. Marco Polo, the Aztecs, the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve. But after it was found his script was unworkable, the script was handed <laughs> off to Doctor Who's best writer, Robert Holmes, who with Hinchcliffe made it darker. Dark enough that a portion where Noah begged his colleague to kill him was actually cut from the final product because it was so dark. Wow, that's very Brundlefly. Wow. Yeah. This is also the best appearance of the Wirren that I know of, seeing as Wirren Dawn is so terrible it made Punkin ill after he and JD finally <laughs> reviewed it. <laughs> Even though the Wirren maggots are definitely just a guy wrapped in bubble wrap painted green, I guess it worked because bubble wrap was new at the time and much of the public had no idea what it was. That's a really fun point, actually. <laughs> is that true, actually, that bubble no wrap idea. was invented in the 70s? I don't I know. I had no idea. <laughs> we continue with Trenton's review... Truly, this is the first in many great Doctor Who stories Tom Baker would find himself in in this golden era. Mind you, it's probably one of two classics in season 12, and it does deserve the title of a classic. And he gives this 4.0 out of 5. Holy moly. Nice one. We're we're staying up in very, very high ratings here. I love it. Everyone's on board this hype train. Oh, yes. (laughs) Uh, excellent mini thank you so much Trenton people who are not Trenton follow Trenton online and high five him from us he is at Trenton Bless that's Bless with two what's now Jim? where an arm has reached out and grabbed some <laughs> ink <laughs> they're S's people alright next up we have Peter Zunich hey there Peter hello Peter oh I've just seen Peter's rating okay <laughs> <laughs> so have I <laughs> do you want to start this one? yes because he says he is not mincing words <laughs> This is, without a doubt, Doctor Who done right. The script is tight, the dialogue natural, the characters well-developed, the acting tight, the backstory interesting, the set stunning, the costumes pristine, the story enthralling, the effects nicely done, and the aliens, well, they're good considering their budget. (laughs) To stop it all, we get an epic speech about how humankind rocks. (laughs) Damn right we do. I love the setting, says Peter. Now we know where all the money they didn't use in robot wins. (laughs) The arc appears as functional as it is beautiful. It's the subtleties that make it so believable. The arc's minute design details render it both logical and interesting. Likewise, nuances in the acting make you care about every moment spent with the multidimensional, passionate characters. I have only three very minor constructive criticisms, Peter says. First... This would be another candidate to revisit with updated effects for the aliens. If they were not so of their time, the story entirely would truly be timeless. I probably agree with you there, actually. Issue two is that the one essential medkit... The one essential medkit upon which the entire human race relies is placed in a distant room's storage locker. (laughs) That's a good point. Mm, Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) (laughs) Finally... Criticism number three, the limited cryo chamber set means that instead of finding things as they move from one area to another, the characters are sometimes forced to suddenly discover things that have been right next to them all along. Actually, we didn't dwell on this in, in our discussions. Sure I, I'm not sure I can think of a... Uh, there, there is a very obvious slime trail going from June's oh, empty that's true. spot throughout like probably half a dozen scenes before yeah, it's finally discussed. That's, that's a very good point. Yeah. Yeah, I... I yeah, I, re- I think I remember that as well. The the uh, the med kit thing, however, is 
a fantastic observation. Why <laughs> yeah. doesn't everyone have one of those little things in their chamber if they need it to survive and no one will be awake to administer said medicine? Why would you not keep it right there? Yeah. Why doesn't the chamber have it built in? Ugh. <laughs> Bloody hell. All right. <laughs> Peter continues again. Trivialities. The directing, lighting, pacing, ending. It was all fabulous. Surely one of the top 10 best Doctor Who episodes ever. Oh my goodness. <laughs> this story is indomitable. And he gives it a 4.9. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Holy moly. Fantastic, Mini. Fantastic. Fantastic review. Thank you so much, Peter. I'm feeling the passion. This is brilliant. Wow, yes. I, I am very intrigued when people give a 4.9. We've had it a couple of times now. Yeah, we've had 4.9s and we've had 5.0s. We, we, we've had 5s, haven't we? In okay. fact, I want to say that in New Who, we've given out... Have we given out? I feel like maybe we gave something along those lines for Blink, Ooh. for example. Mm, not entirely mm, sure. No. I, I would bow to your, your knowledge. No, I don't, I'm not so sure either. I need to have I, a look I'm at curious, though, if, if people are throwing out a 4.9, whether they will actually give a 5.0. It sounds to me like Peter knows on, what Peter. he's talking about. Come on, Peter. He, Here's a 5.0 out there sometime. <laughs> Peter's saying this is, among the, this is in the top, top 10, 10 ever. Yeah. That's... We're oh. waiting for your number one. <laughs> Unless we missed it already, in which case I apologize. I'm looking forward to, let's say, two and a half years from now when we've caught up with everything. <laughs> Realistic goal. Then we can actually make the top ten. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Peter. Next up, we have Michael Ridgway. Ridgway. Hello, Michael. Hey there, Michael. He starts off with things he liked. The horror! The horror! I had this on VHS when I was seven, and the squirmy larvae and the bubble wrap body horror Noah freaked me out then. It still freaks me out, particularly the bit with the udders. <laughs> this is a... in the mood. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. This is a sterile area. Keep out. Totally my new voicemail greeting. <laughs> oh, that's a really good idea, actually. <laughs> Next thing he likes, the killer ceiling light. <laughs> It is just a screwdriver. Awesome supporting cast, particularly Vira and Grumpy Rogan. Uh, was there a will-he-won't-he betrayal plot? He seemed to consider legging it in the shuttle. Mm. And the last thing that Michael liked was the Doctor and companions all perfectly awesome. Loved the indomitable speech. And then it's time for some... Boofs. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to join me on that one. No, it's just you. <laughs> First beef is the Wirren life cycle. How does this work? Where did all the eggs come from if they only consumed a couple of cryo people? Looking forward to your expert analysis. I believe our expert analysis was this makes no sense and we don't understand it. Yes, I'm pretty sure that was the uh, the, <laughs> the final verdict there. Yeah. Yeah. And the next beef, uh, in fact, the last beef is the time lag between mummified Wirren breaking the cryo people's alarm clock and its larvae cat hatching. If the cryo people overslept by several thousand years, it took that long for the larvae to hatch. Looking forward to your expert analysis. C.1. Yep. <laughs> In summary, he says, the major downside is that good episodes make less funny reviews. And this is extraordinarily good. Alien and Cronenberg body horror on a shoestring budget. A masterpiece. And the rating is... 4.7 out of 5 gross worm worms with others munching on sleeping cryo people. Yuck. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much, Michael. 
please, 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 podcast land, follow Michael on Twitter. He is at bad underscore movie underscore club. Thank you for that, Michael. Next up. Next up, we have... This is our first review from uh, Mr. John Knight. Do, 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 do. Like right <laughs> well, well, that'll make sense at the end of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, John. Hey there, John. And welcome aboard. Again, more than 250 words. Fortunately, they are split into uh, sort of a mini and a set of trivia points. So we're going to read the mini. Uh, John says... This was one of only a dozen or so stories across the series that my mother had recorded on VHS, so it was one that I watched very often as a kid. Perhaps the one I watched most often alongside Destiny of the Daleks, Logopolis, and Castrovalva. Okay, I'm sensing bias. (laughs) (laughs) John continues that he recalls us gentlemen previously discussing stories that would be a good intro for new viewers. Ah, I always strongly nominate suggest this story for that purpose. There isn't much in the way of backstory references. The viewer is able to see the adventure through the eyes of Harry, much like was intended with Rose in the early Excellent era. The script is easy to follow and well written, to the point where Tennant repeats the term indomitable to describe human beings in Utopia, and it's thoroughly enjoyable and easily rewatchable. Mm. It's not the best he says, but it's worthy of my first ever rating of a Who serial. And he gives this 4.2 out of 5. Nice. That's very nice. And a, I'm going to say, I think that's a super good point. This is a very good introduction to Classic Who slash Tom Baker, perhaps, in particular. Yeah, I think it, it probably is quite self-contained. Yeah. That's a good starting point. Yeah, excellent. Well observed there, John. Very nice points. Thank you so much. As I said, John has also included a whole bunch of trivia points about this, and we're going <laughs> to we're going to exclude them deliberately and instead post them on the website as a little. I mentioned this as a little incentive for you to go to whoback1.com. Please read John Knight's mini in its full splendor there and high five him online. He is at Knightwriter eighty. Knightwriter. <laughs> <laughs> And the very last review we have this week is from Paul Waring. Hello, Paul. Hey there, Paul. Despite a somewhat tortuous route from script to production involving multiple rewrites, The Ark in Space still manages to be a classic story. Perhaps the most memorable aspects are its special effects and costumes, from the bubble wrap monsters to the bell-bottom trousers, complete with platform shoes. How Sarah changes clothes during the freezing process remains a mystery. The plot is solid and most of the characters have plenty to do, with the exception of Red Shirters, Libri, and Lysette, <laughs> who clearly snuck past the selection process. <laughs> Good point. Although only his second story, Harry is remarkably quick to accept that he has travelled in time and space, despite some initial scepticism. His relationship with Sarah reminds me of Jamie and Zoe, in that he is both protective and rather chauvinistic, even though Sarah is perfectly capable of taking care of herself. Interesting observation there. Mm -mm. And Paul continues with, I'm somewhat surprised that they're still using microfilm in the 30th century. And Noah's threat to atomize the Doctor seems a bit over the top, given that the guns seem to stun Time Lords and mildly irritate the Wirren. Speaking of the Wirren, they make an effective and creepy enemy, albeit let down by a special effects budget measured in pennies. The way they are defeated is unusual, given the limit limited involvement of the Doctor, as Sarah comes up with the idea of using the shuttle and Rogan implements the final step. 
Overall, says Paul, another story where Baker gets to shine. His speech about humanity is superb. And he gives this 4.5 out of 5. Wow. Oh, my goodness. That's the second 4.5 we've had. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant stuff. Thank you very much for that, Paul. Thank you so, so much. Bing bong, future Leon here with yet one more listener mini. We're making a little bit of an exception here. You'll see in a second why. Just FYI, for anyone who's listening and interested in sending in one of these listener minis, go to whobackwhen.com and you will see our, not full schedule, but the schedule for the immediate future. You'll see when we're recording the next episode and when the next episode is dropping and so on and so forth. And uh, you'll be able to figure out by when you need to send in one of these. This one, however, is a little special because it's from a completely new reviewer. This one comes from Bill Pepper. Hello, Bill! with whom we've corresponded on Twitter, and Bill says, Hello, who back when? I'm a long-time listener, occasional tweeter, and now first-time review writer. I just had to offer my comments about Ark in Space, because in 26 seasons of Classic Who, filled with many highs and more than a few lows, Ark in Space is my, all caps, favourite Classic Who story. Now you see why I felt compelled to make an exception for Bill here. Bill continues, the story itself is pretty straightforward, base under siege stuff, but the small cast of characters is compelling. The transformation of Noah into the Wirren is both scary and heartbreaking. Yes, the Wirren looks super fake, and the green bubble wrap is legendarily low budget. My favourite trivia from this episode is Philip Hinchcliffe explaining in an audio commentary that bubble wrap was exciting, because in the 1970s, not many people had heard of bubble wrap. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that was mentioned in the previous review as well. That is hilarious trivia. All right, Bill continues, but back to the episode. The best bit of arc is how the Doctor and his companions have already become a solid team in their second outing. Honestly, if the whole story was just the three of them walking around, looking at stuff and bantering, I'd be happy. Tom Baker shines. No other Doctor could deliver that speech about the indomitable human spirit, and his coaxing of Sarah Jane through the narrow shaft was comical and even a little inspiring. As much as I love Pertwee, had he tried to deliver that dialogue, it would have sounded sexist and condescending. I love this story. I give it a solid 4.5. Awesome, Minnie. Thank you so much, Bill. And welcome aboard. Really glad to be traveling down this temporal road with you. Ladies and gents who are not Bill Pepper, what are you waiting for? Go and high-five Bill Pepper online. He is at Carnival of Glee. All in one word. Thank you so much, Bill. All right, back to the episode. Ciao-ciao. Bing-bong. Thank you so much, everyone yes. who sent in a everyone. mini. Oh, this is fantastic. I'm so thrilled. You know what this is? This is a great community feel. Everyone's on a high. Oh, I'm on a high. I'm also really buzzing from this energy drink. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely a fan favorite, this, this cereal. Certainly seems like it. Yeah. Okay, so next up, we have a bonus episode, namely a review of... Pond Life. Pond Life. Pond Life. <laughs> Followed in quick succession by a new review, namely, of... Asylum of the Daleks. (gasps) I remember it being really good, but I have a feeling that I'm I'm misremembering that. After that, we're going to go back into classic Who land with the continuation of this one in... The Sontaran Experiments. And in the meantime, you can say hello to us on Twitter. Jim, you are... At Jimmy the Who. That's right, you are. And I am at Ponken, P-O-N-K-E-N. Thank you again so much for listening. You've been a lovely audience. Until the next time, rock on. Be right and excellent to each other. And cha-chao. See ya. Kablam!
Cosmo. Did you enjoy the show? Then please do what the Cosmos compels you to and spread the gospel of who back when. Tell your friends. But I've got no friends. No problemo. Tell some strangers. Hey. Like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash who back when. All in one word. Are you into Twitter? Awesome. High five us online and we'll high five you right back. You guessed it. We're at who back when. All in one word. Check us out on Instagram for behind the scenes photos and other Whovian goodness. Watch our videos or even listen to our podcast on YouTube. That's whobackwhen.com slash YouTube. Vote us up on Reddit. Listen to us on Stitcher and head on over to our website, whobackwhen.com, where you can submit a review of your own, browse the article archives and peruse our visual index of aliens, monsters, and more, which increases in Kablamos with every episode. And lastly, give us a rating and review on iTunes. It helps our show get noticed and earns you lots of karma points. That's it. Rock on and be rad and excellent to each other. Catch your earballs in our next Who review or bonus episode. Until then, cha ciao. Who back when? Shh. Whatever you do, tell everybody about it. I'm on the steps. <laughs>